Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. As we ended our last lesson, we read Paul's reassurance in Romans 8.28 that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In God's loving hand, even our trials can become great blessings as he uses them to draw us to himself and to make us more like Jesus. But for us to truly experience those blessings, we need to bring certain attitudes to the trials that we face. Paul mentions love for Christ in verse 28, but life has taught me that faith, trust and perseverance should also be in the mix as well. I first learned this concept about all things working together when I was in high school. I was running late one day and desperately needing caffeine. I stupidly grabbed a handful of ground coffee and threw it in my mouth as I headed out the door. Wrong move. It tasted terrible. I had no idea that coffee grounds by themselves would be so horrible. They needed the addition of some other things such as water, cream and perhaps sugar to be palatable and useful. The same can be said of the trials and hardships that we face in life. On their own, they may be bitter indeed, but mixed together with faith, trust and patience, even that which is bitter can be used for God's glory and our ultimate good. I had the opportunity to share this in a maximum security prison recently. Afterwards, a prisoner who said he was serving three life sentences without the possibility of parole shared how he had seen this to be true in his own life. He told me that after serving 27 years of his sentence, a new law was passed that made him eligible for a parole interview. He had become a Christian in prison and he said that he saw that his potential release as being God's kindness to him. He said that his interview before the parole board went really well, but though they commended him for how his life had changed, they denied his parole, saying that they believed he still had some work to do. They encouraged him, though, to reapply for another interview in four years. Well, he was devastated. He couldn't understand why God had allowed that to happen. And at first, he was angry with the Lord for disappointing him in that way. But he said he soon realized that it was foolish to turn his back on God, who was, after all, the only one who could really help him. He continued to serve the Lord and began to work on the parole board's recommendations. And it was then, he said, that other prisoners began to approach him, explaining that the way he had dealt with his disappointment had actually made them realize that Jesus was real. He was able to lead many of those prisoners to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And he told me, when the board rejected my application, my first thought was all about me. I was so disappointed and I questioned God's love. Why had he allowed that to happen? But then, 
When the other men started surrendering to God one after another, I realized that God was saying it wasn't just about me after all. He was working in their lives and in their stories too, and I was to be part of that. For as I struggled through my own disappointment, they came to see Jesus for who he really is. He had even come to praise God that his parole was denied, he said, because the Lord had used his hardship to bring others to faith. His testimony was that God really does work all things together for good. Those who belong to Christ should never doubt God's love. He is able to use everything that concerns us for his glory and for our good. This is the purpose that he has called us to, according to verse 28. Paul then explains what that purpose is in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What I want us to see in the passage is how it connects to the purpose Paul mentioned in verse 28. It tells us what God's purpose in saving us is, not necessarily the order of his working. His purpose is to make us like his son. We have to remember that Paul was speaking here to Christians, to those who were already saved, for it is those who answer the call of the gospel and who believe the good news of salvation whom God will change to be like Jesus. Justified and cleansed of their sin through faith in Jesus Christ, they will ultimately be glorified in his presence. I really think Paul's point in using words like predestined and foreknew here is to assure us that God is in control and that no trial, no suffering, no persecution can take him by surprise or alter God's eternal purpose for us. It stands forever. Paul then issues a series of questions that almost sound like challenges to his idea, but they're designed to actually show us how secure we are in Christ. He begins in verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The answers to Paul's questions lay down some certain truths. God has become our Heavenly Father, and we need not fear any opposition. He has acquitted us. Our sin has been judged at the cross of Christ, and if he has cleared us of our wrongdoing, there is no one who can truly condemn us. 
And because Christ has been risen from the grave, because he is our risen Saviour who is alive forevermore, he is continually interceding for us before the Father's throne in heaven. What more do we need? Paul then raises a final question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a blessing it is to know that nothing we face this side of heaven can ever separate us from Christ's love. When we face trouble, hardship or mistreatment, when we are in want or in danger from natural disaster or war, we need not fear for he is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Many of those to whom Paul wrote would be called to face death for the sake of Christ. They would be considered as sheep for the slaughter. But he wanted them to hold on to the certain truth that even that would not separate them from Christ's love. No matter what happens to us, we are to hold to that truth too, that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Paul was convinced that for those who belong to Jesus, death, far from being a separation from him, is merely a step into his more immediate presence. Death is not the end. It is really just the beginning of a more glorious life with Christ. Not only that, but nothing that happens in life can separate us from the Lord either. No spiritual power, whether angelic or demonic, can ever change God's love for us. Nothing that we face in the present and nothing that comes our way in the future will interfere with God's incredible love. The height of prosperity or the depths of misery cannot change the way that God sees us and cares for us. And when we understand this truth, it brings an end to all of the loneliness and fear because we know that he's with us and that we can trust in the Father's constant love that's been revealed to us in the gift of Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul knew that because our life with God depends entirely upon our relationship with Jesus, questions would arise in people's minds about the fate of those who did not accept Christ as God's Son, particularly those of the Jewish nation who rejected Jesus and chose to remain under the law under the Old Covenant. Before we look at the text, we need to understand Paul's concerns. Paul was very clear that Jews were God's chosen people, a nation with a unique place in God's purposes for mankind and a special part to play in God's plan of salvation. And yet, when Jesus Christ, God's own son, came into the world, they had rejected him. 
We see this in the Gospels. Though they were individual Jewish people who believed and who had the courage to follow Christ, for the most part the nation refused to believe that he was who he said he was. And as Paul knew well, they even persecuted those who chose to follow Christ. Paul knew that he had to clarify what their rejection of Jesus would mean for them going forward and whether or not God still had an eternal plan for the Jews as his people. In chapter 9 verse 1, Paul begins by revealing his great anguish for his people. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ who is God over all forever praised. Amen. From the beginning, Paul confirmed that what he was about to communicate did not come from anger, but rather from a deep compassion and concern for the group of people he'd been born into. And he reveals the great sorrow and unceasing anguish he had in his heart for the Jewish nation. Paul had never forgotten his roots and declared that he would gladly have laid down his own life as well as every advantage he'd received in Christ if it meant that he could save those of his own race. In saying this, Paul is a wonderful example of the absolute necessity of loving those we want to bring to Christ. We don't speak to them out of judgment or condemnation, but out of a deep longing for them to know him. Paul did not for a moment deny that the Jews were God's chosen people and that they had a place in his eternal plan. And so he begins by listing the privileges God had bestowed upon them. They had the adoption of sons. The Old Testament clearly shows that Israel had a special relationship with God. He chose them to be his very own, above all the other nations of the earth. They had seen God's glory, not only in the Shekinah or glory cloud of God that filled their temple, but also in the pillar of cloud and of fire that led them through the wilderness in their exodus from Egypt. They were party to the covenants of the Old Testament, the special agreements and promises God made with his people that established how they would relate to each other. They'd been given God's law through Moses, helping them to understand God's righteousness and setting them apart from the godless nations around them. They were defined and in many ways protected by that law. They'd been entrusted with God's plans for the tabernacle and temple, as well as the instructions as to how sin might be covered and how the Lord might be approached and worshipped.
They had all the tradition and all the knowledge of the patriarchs, their ancestors, who chose to follow God. And most importantly, they gave us the Messiah. For Jesus, who is declared to be God over all, forever praised, traced his lineage through them. He was Jesus, son of David, born of the tribe of Judah. God had given the Jews every advantage. They were truly blessed among all the nations and people of the earth, just as God had promised Abraham. And in all his dealings with them, God's purpose had been to prepare them for his coming son. Yet when he appeared, they rejected him and were among those who crucified him. They refused to believe and turned away from God's greatest gift. As the Apostle John writes, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The question Paul knew he needed to answer was what would become of them? Was there any hope for the Jewish nation now? To help his readers understand God's overarching plan, Paul reminds them of things from God's perspective in verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who were descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. He begins with the assertion that just because many of those who considered themselves to be Abraham's descendants had rejected Christ, the plan of God had not failed. It was certainly true that the first believers in Jesus had come from the Jewish nation, but Paul wanted those in Rome to remember that there was far more to being a member of God's chosen people than mere national descent. He reminded them of what he had written earlier, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. As we saw earlier in Romans chapter 2, 3 and 4, being one of God's chosen people is not a matter of being born into a particular racial group that came from a particular individual. In reality, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, who was born of Abraham's rash encounter with the slave girl Hagar, and Isaac, who was the son God had promised, would be born to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Paul reveals it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. This is the first indication that not all of the physical descendants of Abraham would be considered God's chosen ones. For something deeper than national heritage was at work. There had always been something which Paul called God's election at work, meaning that God had selected certain people to be part of his plan for salvation. This distinction among offspring continued 
to the next generation. In Isaac's children, through his wife, Rebekah, Paul says in verse 10, Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, just as it has been written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Abraham's son of promise, Isaac, had two children of his own with his wife, Rebekah. They were twin boys named Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first and so had certain rights and privileges over his younger brother. But God chose Jacob while he was still in his mother's womb to rule over his brother and to be the one whom the line of Messiah would come through. Not because Jacob had done anything good or bad, but simply because of God's own purpose. The book of Genesis tells us that God's choice came to pass, as the older brother Esau ended up selling the blessing of his firstborn birthright to his younger brother Jacob. Paul was reminding his readers that there is more to being one of God's chosen people than merely being a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The Jewish believers in Rome would have immediately agreed with Paul's reasoning here about these distinctions within the family of Abraham. They were quite familiar with the physical descendants of Abraham through his son Ishmael, the ancestors of the Arab nations today. And yet the Jews would never have considered Ishmael's sons to be God's chosen people. His chosen people came through the son of promise, Isaac, and his descendants. They recognized this distinction in the next generation as well. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Esau's descendants had become a different nation, the Edomites, who were a thorn in the flesh to the people of Israel throughout their history. In fact, they were a nation that God later said through the prophet Malachi that he hated. Paul makes it clear then that from the beginning there were distinctions made within Abraham's physical descendants and that God's election of one over another had nothing to do with a person's works or their own righteousness. His selection had nothing to do with their merit but with choosing and preserving a line through which the Messiah could come. God's election, however, does not mean that God is impulsive and unpredictable or that his choices are somehow haphazard, for nothing in this world is without purpose and God is sovereign over all of it, whether we always understand his decisions or not. Paul addresses this line of thought immediately in verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? No, not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He wanted them to understand that his attitude of mercy toward them was based on his grace, his kindness alone, and it was not based on their works or their own self-righteousness. 
As Paul put it in verse 16, God's favor does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but upon God's mercy. Paul then gave them another example, this time from their actual deliverance from slavery in Egypt. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. When Moses first went to Pharaoh to demand the release of God's people, he told the Egyptian ruler that God had raised him up as ruler of the Egyptians so that God's power would be revealed, for he was going to use Pharaoh to demonstrate his power and proclaim his name. Yet again, Paul pointed to God's sovereignty, saying that he controls all things. And according to verse 18, God is able to control even the hardening of men's hearts in order for his purpose to ultimately be fulfilled. Paul then addresses another likely concern in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Throughout history, God's process of election had been seen, and the natural objection that might arise from that was how could God then blame those who had rejected him, for surely they were merely acting in accordance with what he had already determined. Paul bluntly declares that a person has no more right to argue with God than a lump of clay can complain what the potter will make it into. Now, obviously, there is a big difference between a lump of clay and a person. For one thing, God treats us with love rather than just some lifeless lump of mud. And also, we have a free will that surely enters into the mysterious mix. Instead of complaining, though, we should rather focus on the mercy that God has shown us. He says in verse 22, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Paul reminded them of God's almost endless patience with his people's repeated rebellion. He had not destroyed them as they deserved because of the promised Messiah through whom the riches of God's mercy would be known. Paul wanted them to consider the fact that if God had hardened the hearts of the Jews to Christ in the present, it was really only so that the door might be opened to the Gentiles and his promises to Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed through him would be fulfilled. Now, I do understand that Paul's arguments here are complex, but take heart, we will continue with this topic in our next lesson and hopefully understand more.
In the meantime, though, let's remember what Paul has revealed so far in the text. Israel is the chosen people of God. They were chosen to play a unique role in God's plan to redeem mankind. They received the law and the covenants, and most importantly, they brought the Messiah into the world. However, to be a true Israelite was always more than a matter of racial descent, even from the time of Abraham. There was always an election within the nation of Israel, and there have been repeated instances where God has revealed that within the larger group was a remnant of those who were believing in him as Abraham did and following him faithfully. God's selection of that group was not unfair, for as Lord of all, he has the right to do as he pleases. And though the Jewish nation for a time seemed to have hardened their hearts to the gospel, it was only so that the Gentiles could come into the family of God. God's purposes for the Jews had not failed. We'll talk about this more next time. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.